little bit of review real quick tonight before we um, look into some more translation work. And, uh, and then the example we're going to use is, was your assignment, so you're going to come into that here later on. We've, been, we've worked a lot through the Old Testament, and the reason I spent so much time in the Old Testament was because I think we're not very familiar with it as, in terms of its history as we are with the New Testament. And it has a longer history, frankly. Um, it was around a little while longer. And so um, we looked at uh, the main blocks, if you will, of where we get the Old Testament from. And, of course, we looked at the Septuagint as perhaps the most reliable because it is closest to the original, in terms of the actual writing, to the original oldest Hebrew, even though it is a Greek translation. And we looked at the Masoretic, which was a thousand years later put together, and it was really a process that took hundreds of years for them. And it was, so there's no the Masoretic text. That's really a misnomer. There were lots of Masoretic texts, and they were, it was really one family that led the way there, and that hence the name, the Masoretes, um, and uh, that produced that and maintained that. And so, but they didn't really get started on that or credited until about 800 or so, and didn't really give us a full one until well after 1,000. And so we have the Masoretic. I didn't really talk a lot about these other ones, but I did reference them, especially the Vulgate. But as we talk about translation as a mechanism of preservation, um, the Septuagint, of course, is our best example by far as far as translation giving us preservation because we have the translation of the Septuagint, which the Greek, which really gives us uh, the oldest access um, by back-translating into the Hebrew. And so um, this is what I want to talk about with these translations as well as their aid to preservation. And so we've looked at copying and the whole process of manuscripts and documentation and how do we know that uh, something belongs in our Bible. We talked about canon uh, a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago. And so we want to really just go back and talk about that um, while this is in the Hebrew and these are not, um, we actually find that these are much older. And so we have the Samaritan. Uh, and you might think the Samaritans, Samaritans are bad. You know, Jews would avoid Samaritans by all costs. You know, you walk on the other side of Samaria, you go around, you go up, and you avoid Samaria. Um, but they had a claim, did they not? They staked a claim to Judaism. Um, they were half-breeds, and they had their own mechanism of pres preservation. Um, and so we do have the Samaritan uh, text. And, um, and so we, we do have that available to us to derive from. Uh, we also have the Peshitta, which um, if you don't know what the Peshitta is, because I didn't remember it either, um, it is the Syriac version. Um, and yes, the country of Syria had a very strong Jewish population. In fact, that's where all those people that were avoiding Samaria were going to. They were going to Syria or Lebanon. They were going north. And, uh, and so the Syriac, which is what I, I talked about this morning, um, it gives us another translation group, another set of documents, a set of, of very old uh, Old Testaments. The Targums, if you're, if you're not aware of that, that's the Arabic. 
That's the Arabic translation of the Old Testament. And of course, the Vulgate is the Latin translation. And so by these outside of Israel who wanted access to it for their people um, because they weren't really, uh, because Hebrew wasn't an, a, a, a necessary a language that was first for them. It might have been a secondary language. Um, and sometimes it wasn't preserved very well because obviously the Samaritans had access to Hebrew, but it was very limited and the Jews made sure of that. Uh, they didn't want them down there. And so they developed their own preservation of it. And so when we look at these, we can see that a lot of this was translation work that that we rely upon for some preservation of God's word. And so when some people today want to say, we got to stop doing translations, that's really, uh, uh, if these people felt that way, we would have a very different Bible today. We really would. Um, and, and to some degree. The fact is that these people all understood that translation is a part of bringing the Bible to people. Just as much as inspiration, um, certainly inspiration is, is absolutely necessary and is certainly prior chronologically and, and vital. Um, but if that happens and no one preserves it, um, of what value does it become for us uh, to be passed there's no means for it to be communicated other than orally. And, and so we find that God tells the writers, write this down and send it out to people. And so that's what happened. And so, so when we look at textual, our, our, the modern versions are mostly based upon the Masoretic. Um, and these are often relegated well in the background um, and, uh, but uh, if we take them all into account, I think we will find that these four uh, lend itself much more strongly to the Septuagint than to the Masoretic. Uh, they'll lend a lot more strength upward than downward in, in what they're including. And so that was the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we looked at, uh, we have some options. We have the received text, and that was the uh, in, in Greek, it's the Textus Receptus, and that was the commonly used one. We had the Alexander. We also have a Vulgate. We have a Latin in there, too. There is a Latin New Testament, of course, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, translation there as well. And so we find that these are in two different kinds of Greek as well, by the way. Remember, this Greek is High Greek, and this is Egyptian Greek, which is a little bit different. So is the Septuagint somewhat. It has some Egyptian phrases in it. Um, that we don't find in these, because these other ones, Samaritan, the Peshitta, the Targums, and the Vulgate, aren't Egyptian. <laughs> so they're northern. Um, well, Rome is, Latin is a little far off, but um, the Septuagint, remember, was, writ- was translated in Egypt into Greek for the Greek Empire at their request. So there are some Egyptian phrases in the Septuagint. There's an influence there and some, some uh, words that are more Egyptian Greek than other parts of Greek. And, and you, guys, you, all, you guys know that, right? You all? Which one is correct? Depends on what part of the country you're from, right? Y'all know that that's real English. The rest of you just speak American. But the South speaks English. I don't know if you realize that. Yes. Just speed it up. 
If you take British and slow it way down, it will sound just like the South. If you take a Southerner and speed him up on a tape player, it will sound British, not American. Yep. It's really strange. They actually have the purest English, other than their contractions and stuff, um, of any American speech. Very interesting. It's just slow. But they're in the sun, and you, you know, those British people are way up near north. So just, you got to slow down when you're hot. So, all right. You're going to test that, aren't you, Jenny? You're going to say, where does he get this stuff? That was just a linguist, and I heard her speaking, and I was like, really? And so I listened to her whole presentation, and she was able to do it. She was able to take southern drawl and speed it up, and it was British. It was like, that's weird. Anyway, so we have, <laughs> we have that variation. So the Alexandrian Greek um, is comparable to the Septuagint. Remember, it's high Greek. It's not the common marketplace Greek. This is the Greek of literature. The Iliad was written in that. and things like. So it's, it's a different kind of Greek. And so this is, a, this is in what's called Koine Greek, which is the Greek of common use. And so we have these available to us. Again, these are our oldest ones, but we have very, very, very few of them. They've only been found recently. And as far as we could tell, they were never prominently used, even in their day. They were basically very regional and shelved. And that's why they were stored. They were basically put, on, put in a place to be stored where they were not used frequently, and we don't really find a lot of historical evidence that they were commonly used. These texts, however, we find ex- extensive use of them, and that's how we call it the received text. We just receive it all the way down the line. We can trace it right back. And so in our New Testament, we have um, these, and again, our preference from what we looked at, um, we, we looked at the strength of the Septuagint, and we looked at the strength of the received text versus Alexandrian, and the influence that the, the Egyptian theologians had on this, and some of those examples we talked about last week. And so that's just a little uh, blurb there of review of why we're covering that. So we're in the process of translation work, and we want to talk about that as a mechanism of getting you your Bible. So we're going to jump ahead, since we talked about these ancient texts, let's jump to your modern New Testaments a little bit, and therein is most of your um, battles today in some fundamentalist circles. If you're not in fundamentalist circles, you'll never hear this battle really discussed. But among fundamentalists, which we consider ourselves that theologically, although in they would not consider it. In fact, the Tower Road Baptist Church down here would consider me a pretty much a heretic, um, because <laughs> I don't fit their mold. Um, and uh, so that's an argument. And so they, they, we have a King James only group, and there's a lot of people who are not King James only who say a lot of things about the King James only that isn't true about them, and vice versa. They say a lot of things. So, so we're trying to parse this out, and we talked about this last week. So we're trying to um, discern this, and we talked that there's two translations worked out of the received text in English, um, and that would be the King James and New King James. The other ones depend upon 
doesn't mean they never read the received text or use it in any reference point, but they are primarily built on the Alexandrian texts. Again, very few of them, but they are older, um, but untested over time, really, and we find some significant portions missing there, and much of the same accusation goes around. Do you remember the accusation that we said about the Hebrew after Christ? Post-Jesus, what was the concern of the church about the Hebrew copies of God's word? Especially about 150 years after the time of Christ when the church was really getting uh, going. It was really a threat, viewed as a threat anyway. Uh, Jerusalem had fallen. And, and so what was the concern by the early church fathers about the texts of the Old Testament that were being produced by the Hebrew people? Okay, they were, they, were, they were watering down the prophetic passages that talked about divinity. And so the prophetic idea that the Messiah was divine. And they were making that accusation on a very specific level. And they were looking at these versus what they had. And they are saying they are trying to extract or limit or um, uh, reword, rephrase things to try to get away from the idea that there is a Messiah coming who is divine and a Messiah who must, what? Die. They're trying to get away from the idea of a sacrificial Messiah. And they were watering down those texts. They, couldn't, they didn't always remove them completely, but the concern of the early church fathers was that the Jews are watering down their passages to uh, exclude the claims of Christ upon fulfilling those prophecies. Well, that same argument is being used largely in most fundamentalist circles about modern translations that what the Alexandrian text is doing uh, doesn't just doesn't eliminate the divinity of Christ, but it does weaken it. And that's really what we're talking about. We're not talking about wholesale removal, but we're talking about a weakening, that we are weakening those passages. Um, and that's the same accusation being used today um, with regard to the modern versions built off the Alexandrian texts, and that it weakens our teaching on Christ's divinity and it weakens our teaching on the Trinity, the triunity of God. And so once we take Jesus out of the realm of the divine, we don't have a triune God, right? Um, and so they take the Spirit and Christ out of that, and so that's one of their major arguments. Is it completely true? No, I know several of, the, of those that were involved. There were some, some uh, interesting individuals in some of those early translation groups uh, that were building off the Alexandrian text. And yes, there is some significant portions and occasional titles of Christ that are absent. They're just not there. And this, if you have your NIV or your NASB or any of those you, they are correct. They, they are there. You can put them side by side and you go, oops, what happened to this? Um, well, it's not there in the Alexandrian text. So it's not that they are 
lost completely or that they are denying the deity of Christ, but they are weakening the textual uh, uh, passages that we have available to demonstrate the deity of Christ and the triunity of our Savior, or, or of, of our God, the triune God. And so whatever, what they have here is now they're applying it to the Greek, and they're saying this is the problem. The Alexandrian is, is attacking or weakening the divinity and the sacrificial nature of God's sacrifice. Uh, now, having said that, the King James is also guilty of some theological manipulation. Okay, Remember, last week we talked about what does every translator bring to the work? His own theology, his own perspective, his own philosophy. Every translator does it. You can't avoid it. And so you have a choice between several words. Well, what's going to influence your choice between the nuances between those words in your language that both could be used for one word in Greek? Well, which direction do you want to go? Do you want to lean this way or do you want to lean that way? And that's, every translator is guilty of that. This is why with the Latin Vulgate, it was written by one guy. I mean, the translation work was pretty much done by Jerome and some of his students. I mean, he took, he was an incredible task he took on to him. Some of these guys, you know, uh, just, just phenomenal how much work they did. Uh, the Hexapla by origin, just an incredible lifelong endeavor. Um, but we uh, find it, as soon as it comes out, who's got a problem with it? One of the great early church fathers, St. Augustine. He just hates the Vulgate. He says, you took way too many liberties here and there. and I mean, he just tore it apart and called it vulgar. Uh, it, it was it just terrible. And, and he took Jerome to task for it. Um, but it's still very, very beneficial for us to see there's one leaning and then there's another leaning. And if you want to know which way Augustine leans, go talk to a Calvinist because all Calvin did was reassert all of Augustine's teachings. That's really all he did is just repackaged it. And that's what Calvinism really is. And so um, before you jump on the bandwagon and attack the Vulgate, remember the, that the guy attacking also has a predisposition theologically. So you better know what he's standing for. Well, we know what St. Augustine taught extensively. He wrote enormous volumes, um, just like we know. Well, so, so the Bible says that one argument seems right until you hear the other side. And so you need to hear both of these, and that's what I want to expose you to, is to recognize that while, yes, we have, out, we have arguments against the Alexandrian text, but we also need to recognize there is a theological leaning within the King James translation as well. What would that leaning be towards? All right, you're going to, well, actually, <laughs> sort of towards the Anglican, but yeah, um, they're going to soften up a couple of passages, but they didn't really have a lot of issues with the Catholics. Um, but it's going to be much more Anglican, and it's going to have some influence of Calvin in it um, because of the Reformation. And so you're going to see some influences there. Uh, and, so, and, and that matters. And that's why, um, as a student of God's Word, once we say, I am 100% dependent upon this one translation, 
Now you are 100% dependent upon that group's theological leanings. And that's why I'm not a guy that's going to advocate one and only one. But I will tell you this is the direction. So you know I preach out of the New King James. and so, uh, But that's not always been the case, by the way. I have preached out of other versions in other Bibles, or, or in other Bibles, in other churches. And so I have preached out of the NIV. I have preached out of the Old King James. I have preached out of the NASB. Um, so, um, but for this church, I wanted to standardize into the New King James. It was the one that I felt the most um, comfortable with me. Um, but again, I still have to just address things just like I did this morning. So, in our translation work, let's get, like I said, I want to get to the modern era. Um, in addition to the various texts, so you have the Alexandrian set for the NIV, NRSV, and a plethora of them. There are so many that there are, there are dozens and dozens of them set off of the Alexandrian text. You have the King James and New King James that are, that are pretty much the only modern English versions that are built off of the Texas Receptus, the received text. So, um, but in addition to that, so we, we do have that. So I'll make that one point difference is the, um, variation. And so you have two different texts that you're working off of, but there is another issue. And that issue in our modern version debate comes to an approach to translation. And we're going to deal with two approaches. Um, There's the literal approach, which means that I'm going to take each Greek word and translate it into English uh, as precisely as possible. And I'm going to make a word-for-word. I'm going to try to be as consistent as possible in that. And um, sometimes that's going to create some interesting statements that maybe my speakers don't fully understand, but that's what the purpose of the pastor-teacher role is, is to help explain that. And so in a literal translation, uh, you're going to have some assignment of word to word. So Greek word, English word, or phrase. And again, not always can we do a word for word. Sometimes it takes two or three English words to handle one Greek word. And sometimes uh, one English word can handle a couple of Greek words. And so um, that's not very often. That's often the first. But um, we're going to have that assignment. Wherever we vary from that, we put it in italics in our Bible. We talked about that last week. So we have a literal translation. And I really want to emphasize that one of the things I really, really am committed to is, is this process. The alternative that was really introduced very strongly in the NIV is called dynamic equivalence. Equivalent, E-N-C-A-N-C. That doesn't look right. In fact, I don't want to say that. Uh, dynamic equivalent. We'll just put there. That's got to be an E. Yeah. Okay. So, what is a dynamic equivalent? Well, dynamic just means what? 
it changes, it moves, it's moving. Um, and so we want an equivalent, something equal to the word, but we want it to keep up with us. We want it to change it, uh, to, to uh, help us understand it. And so a dynamic equivalent, and, and I, I, I honestly can't sit here and list them off for you uh, in the NIV, um, but I like to use the illustration out of Africa because I had a roommate from Africa and his Bible said something different than my Bible. And so I had an Af- uh, actually two African roommates, uh, one from Nigeria and one from Liberia. And so my Nigerian roommate had a Bible and uh, a very common passage, okay? Oh, it's blue. I got to use blue here first. The common passage is the words of Christ which say, I stand at the door and knock. We'll just stop there. Okay, I stand at the door and knock. Pretty straightforward, right? It's not what his Bible said. His Bible said, I stand at the door and call. Dot, dot, dot. That's a dynamic equivalent. Why, when they translated for his culture, did they use call instead of knock? Well, they do. No, they do use them. No. It's a cultural problem. In their culture, the only people who knock at your door are thieves. Thieves knock. In Africa, if someone knocks at your door, they're a thief. If a friend comes to visit you and wants to come in, he calls out when he arrives. Um, yesterday, I went to, or was that yesterday or Saturday? Friday. Friday, I went to visit one of my neighbors up in the Bahamas because he's doing some work so you guys can actually drive in on gravel. So he's laying gravel the next two days for me. <laughs> we can throw some of those on just for you guys. Let me know what time you're going to be there. We want fresh. <laughs> and so... Um, Driving to Cody's place up there is, anybody's place up there is kind of, you know, no trespassing, and he doesn't have a lot of those signs. So you drive squirrely back in there, and you're like, okay, I don't really know this guy very well, and, and so and I don't, there's like three doors, so which one, so I knock on one door, and it was probably the wrong, it was the wrong door, and so I just stood back, nobody answered, so I saw, Cody, Cody, I don't know if he's in his, in his barn or hiking, who knows, I'm yelling his name around, pretty soon he shows up, comes out the other door, he says, yeah, you called? Um, no, but um, in Nigeria, if you're knocking on the door, you're a thief. So the translators who knew the culture said, we can't use knock, because they'll think Jesus has come to steal your soul. So they used a dynamic equivalent of what Jesus was saying, that he's not knocking as in he's going to come in and steal something, but rather he is inviting himself in. He is saying, will you let me in? And, and in their culture, what they did was if you were 
visiting and you wanted to be let in, you would stand at the door and call. And so that's what they used here. Now, that is a culturally sensitive dynamic equivalent. Uh, but again, some of the difficulty is th- who gets to decide what requires dynamic equivalence and who doesn't. The translator decides. Now, what has this just done? This has just put the translator in what role? Now he's doing something more than translating. He is translating not just words, but meaning. So now he can decide the meaning of knock. Now this is, this is I'm not saying this is horrible error. I'm just, this is actually a very uh, good use of it, probably. And, um, but frankly, I think I can go in and say, it was written to Jewish people, and I think I can explain to African believers the difference and unbelievers the difference between Jewish practice and African practice, just like I can communicate to you the difference between American practice and Jewish practice. But rather than giving that necessary, this man has, or this translation group, translated the meaning, not the word. There is a word in Swahili for knock. And that is what the Hebrew word literally, or I'm sorry, the Greek word literally means. Knock. But they didn't want to have the confusion, so they used a dynamic equivalent. They changed the word and so they could keep the meaning for that culture. And the problem is, is what happens when we start using dynamic equivalents beyond culture and we're trying, we decide a meaning here that isn't quite the same as what I think it means. You see, now I don't have access in my Bible to the actual word. I have access to what one man believes its meaning to be. And that's what happened with the NIV. And as one of the strongest claims against it was... I think we should be educated enough to be able to do our hit work into the, the language, the culture, the practices of the original audience to be able to understand this. Here's, another, here's a good example. Um, what happens when you do good to your enemy according to the New Testament? You heap coals of fire on his head. What does that mean? It sounds like you shouldn't be good to your enemies because you're keeping coals of fire on their head. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. So what does it mean to heap coals of fire upon somebody's head? Yeah, people carried stuff on their heads. But... We could translate that meaning across because people don't carry stuff on their heads in our culture, nor do we need coals of fire to start our own fire because ours went out. We would just hand them a match and say, stick it in your pocket and take it home. So should we dynamically equivalent that and say, by doing good to your neighbors, you're giving them a match for their pocket? No, I think we should teach them some of the culture of the day, and hopefully we're not so insistent. Now, could it be a judgment? Could it be mean judgment? 
Yeah, but let's allow the reader to examine the actual phrase that's used and then seek to discern by the Holy Spirit what direction to take that, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing to heap coals of fire on somebody's head, whether it's, oh, I'm going to get at you, I'm going to give good to you so you can burn. No, you know, if that's your attitude, I don't think that's what the passage is trying to communicate. That if you really want to get even with him, do good things to him, then he's going to suffer. You know, I, I don't think that's the intent. If you think that's the intent, fine, but those are the actual words. Do your research, do your study, and discover that. And so that's a passage. And so this is the, the, the struggle, is do we use a literal word-for-word or dynamic equivalence? And um, there's a lot of this going on in your modern translations. And then we're not even into paraphrasing. This is not a paraphrase. Paraphrasing is another whole group and interpretive translations, and they're adding huge amounts to it from their perspective to try to direct your thought of what they think that passage is trying to say. And, and so I always try to clarify with people, it's not sin to read these, but know what you're reading. Know what these men did, and they do tell you, but how many of you have read the prologue to your, the translator's notes to your Bible? How many people read those? A few of you, good. Um, they warn you, they tell you, they tell you the mechanism they use, and they tell you the passages, and they, they, they do that. It, but most people don't take time to read that. Most people don't take time to read the Bible, period, but let alone the prologue of how, what the translators used as their, as, as their uh, format. And so you need to know this so that while you're reading this, and it's okay, I, I encourage people, if, if you read through the Bible a year and you want to use a different translation every year, praise God you're reading the Bible every year. I'm not going to sit there and kick you for that and say, oh, you're even a paraphrase. But know what you're reading <laughs> and be able to discern and understand this guy, this is from his perspective, this paraphrase. And this is a dynamic equivalent. And, and if you don't know the original, if, especially if you don't have access to one of these, that's a literal translation, and all you have is one of these, Now you're going to struggle when you go to college and your roommate's Bible says, I stand at the door and knock, and your Bible says, I stand at the door and call, and you've never seen anything but this, and you were sure that this was in the original, but it wasn't. It's a dynamic equivalent. And he thinks there's something wrong with my Bible. And Simon's like, no, your Bible's wrong. This is wrong. Simon Nwaru. And so these are the issues at hand. And so... These are all right, uh, and we're not going to just plaster them to the ground, but recognize that they're derived from a text that is weakening several key doctrines, and they're employing a mechanism that is um, involving more than just translations, doing some interpretation as well. But again, all translations do that, even the literal ones because you still have choices between words that we talked about last week. Okay? And so we recognize that. All right, we have a little exercise for the last. Any questions on this? You say, oh, you're off your rocker. Yes? You know what? I'm not African, so I have no idea. But that's what they do. 
it's kind of like the thieves here peeking in the windows, where they, you know, or seeing the lights on or scoping you out. I don't know. They make a noise to see if there's any rustling in the house, but I'm not African, so I can't really answer that. Yeah. Knock, knock, knock. Yeah, it wouldn't be knock, knock, knock. Behold, behold, I stand at the door and call, call, call. If anyone hear my voice. See, it kind of fits in because he talks about his voice. So it's all right. It, that's, like I said, that's a good use of it. All right. Having used that, I asked you to be able to distinguish between two little words. Two and four. Two little itty-bitty words. I'm just going to put up Oh, I'm sorry, I missed the word. Pray blank the saints. This is the difference between your New Testament and a Catholic New Testament. is a little itty-bitty word. Two or four. Which means what? You're praying to them, and this is big. This is a big deal. This is a huge deal, isn't it? You're praying to them. This is the, the Roman... New Testament will have pray to the saints. And so you pick up their Bible and you say, oh, you guys shouldn't really be praying to the saints or praying to Mary, praying to all you should be just pray to God in Jesus' name. And they'll pick up their Bibles and it will say, you know, it tells me right here, I have a command, pray to the saints. Him? <laughs> uh, let's see. Given the criteria of Catholicism, uh, yeah, there would have been very few to pray to. Uh, let's see. Who would have been dead by then? Uh, Stephen. Um, I don't, you know, there had no canonization process by that point. But this is the. the you see, you're trying to be rational, and, and translation work isn't rational. It's irrational. It's all about your predispositions. Correct. So they're not considering that you're a saint, I'm a saint, Paul. It, it, you have to be canonized as a saint. So you have to be added to the number, go through the, the rigors of their prosci, there's more than one, uh, to get there. there. There's a couple of ways to get there, I believe, and historically. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so... Right, and so we haven't even gotten to this word. We're just trying to figure out this little word, okay? They have defined saints differently than you and I would define saints, all right? And so their definition of saints is definitely different, no doubt, but we're just talking about the translation work. At least they translated the word. This is the word in the Greek, is the holy ones. They could have used holy ones, 
the saints, that's all it means, the, the sanctified ones, the set-apart ones, that's what saint means, is, is a holy one. Um, and so uh, they, they did bring that word down and maintain that. They just, the difference was between their translation, the word to, which puts the saints in a place of receiving prayers, which puts them in some influence with God that is equivalent to the influence of Jesus in heaven. And that's what they've done with the saints, Mary. And, and so it's fascinating that they actually prefer to pray to Mary and the saints than to Jesus. Do you know the rationale behind that? I know you guys do and several others. The rationale behind that is that, well, they were more like us than Jesus was. And so they have more compassion for us than Jesus does because they know how hard it is to be a dirty, rotten sinner. And so their contention, first of all, is that Mary is his mom. He's got to listen to his mom, after all. And she was more like us. And so what they are really attacking by this is not Christ's divinity, but his humanity. So when Hebrews says he was in all points tempted just like us, yet without sin, all they can see is the yet without sin, and they don't see that just like us. He endured everything just like us. He just didn't succumb to any of it. He understands how hard it is. He understands. And you are attacking his humanity by saying that he can't have as much compassion for you, the one who died for you, than Mary or than the saints. And that's why they pray the saints and Mary. That's the rationale behind it, um, more than they pray in Jesus' name. Right. Well, now they don't. Right. Right. But if you look at the history of that, that's not forever either. The, the sinless state of Mary was introduced to appease Islam when Islam was taking over uh, and they were ha- the Catholic Church couldn't, they had already taken Spain, they were working up, and that was one of the concessions. They were like, what is your problem with our teaching? They said, well, you mix, you have God having sex with a woman. And that's when Catholicism introduced, if you look at the doctrine, it was introduced then to appease Islam because Islam has always believed in the sinless state of Mary. And so that's, that's a concession to Islam. Yes. Very strong. Yep. And so, that, so that's not always the case, but it is the case now. And so we find that um, this is huge. What a difference. This is about your prayer life. This is about your communion with God. This is how you speak to him. And so when we go to Revelation, we see the prayers of the saints are put before the altar of God, the specific prayers for God to judge, that's what I believe those prayers are, that they are mixed with incense and that they, they incite God to exercise his wrath in that case. Uh, the prayers of the saints are, some of them are stored. Some of your prayers are stored, some are answered right away. Um, the ones that are stored are when you say, oh Lord, please judge them. Well, one day he will, and he'll store those prayers. 
the ones you'll listen to more carefully and apply today are probably, Lord, please save them, um, because this is the day of salvation. So he's got to answer that quicker. Um, Praying for the saints, you put that in there, which is what your Bible says. First of all, it's huge textual, the, the, the context, it fits the context so much better. Remember in translation, we can't just put blinders on, we got to see the whole thing, just like an interpretation, because there are some interpretation here. Um, and so now praying for the saints is very different. We have to redefine saints, because if they're people that are already died and in heaven and in a glorified state, why do you pray for them? Right? There's, you don't need to pray for the dead, really. Um, there are, that you I don't think their condition can be changed radically, and, and they're already in a blessed state. And so, the holy ones. And so, praying for the saints, now you have to look at saints, well, that has to be someone on earth. And again, what do we find the letters of Paul, Peter, John, written to the saints that are at so-and-so, such and such a place. So, pray for the saints that are at such and such. So, these are believers now that are alive today. So, you should be praying for one another. Now, um, this is how error is introduced through translation work. Right. Correct. And that's why they had masses for the dead, is to help shorten their period in purgatory, which is another introduced doctrine much later. Um, and it was really introduced to help build the Vatican, um, along with indulgences. Yeah, it was introduced in those, historically in those instances. But, so, I just want to bring this example out to show you that translation matters. Even little itty bitty words. And that's why last week I challenged you about those italicized words. Please read your Bibles without them, and if they aren't really necessary for you to grasp it, don't put a lot of energy into them. Don't certainly base theology on those. Um, Focus on your literal translations and focus on, but, but don't sit there and just blow off little words. Um, they make a difference. But italicized words, you know that they aren't in the Greek. Now, some of them are just because of the English Greek thing we need to add and make sense, um, but a lot of them aren't necessary. Uh, and so, uh, this little word, two or four, when you apply it to your prayer life, is big difference, right? Little itty bitty word. The Orthodox um, New Testament is the New King James today. Their approved um, New Testament translation is the New King James. It was the King James, and now it's the New King James. They do not adhere to any of the modern translations NIV on. They do not acknowledge the Alexandrian text at all. They hold to the Texas Receptus. And realize that it's recent for them to allow English. They're the Greek Orthodox, well, even the Russian Orthodox. They taught most of their people Greek, so they used the Texas Receptus. Um, 
you feel ripped off sometimes <laughs> when you hear about the Peruvians learning Hebrew and you hear about the Russians learning Greek. You're like, hey, we're ripped off. All we got is English. Um, but they would use the Texas Receptus only. And and if you get, uh, I didn't bring mine today, but you get a, a Greek Orthodox, an Orthodox. It's not Greek. It's Orthodox Bible. The New Testament is the New King James, um, and. Uh, and, formal, and that's really very recent that they've even allowed it in English in their services. And it's really just to try to draw Americans into Greek Orthodoxy. It really is. Okay? Little words matter. And it changes this, which changes a lot. So whole doctrines are built out of a little word. Two or four. So please be attentive to those little words. In your memorization, your study, um, please recognize that they do matter. Okay? Let's work pray. Lord God, we do thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you again for your truth and for the process by which it has come to us. And, and uh, Lord, we have a high confidence and we recognize, though, that the more that men want to put themselves into your word, the more damage that can be done. And we pray that we might uh, stick to your truth and recognize and know and, and then that we might uh, apply it to our lives. And Lord, is, uh, that we might be careful not to get into a critical mindset that casts a shadow of doubt over all of your words somehow or another, but that we might uh, recognize uh, its strength and its consistency and we pray for discernment as we talked about this morning that we might know the truth and that we might be made free thereby in Christ Jesus name Amen